Thank you for joining us for another episode of Ancient Eclectic. Today, we will continue our reading of the ancient Greek epic poem, The Iliad, attributed to Homer, translated by Samuel Butler, read by Richard Best. The famous spearsman, Idomeneus, led the Cretans, who held Knossos, and the well-walled city of Gortis. Lictus also, Miletus and Lacastus, that lies upon the chalk, the populous towns of Phaestus and Ritium, with the other peoples that dwelt in the hundred cities of Crete. All these were led by Idomeneus and by Meriones, peer of murderous Mars, and with these there came eighty ships. Tlepolemus, son of Hercules, a man both brave and large of stature, brought nine ships of lordly warriors from Rhodes. These dwelt in Rhodes, which is divided among the three cities of Lindus, Aelesus, and Chimeris, that lies upon the chalk. These were commanded by Tlepolemus, son of Hercules, by Astiochia, whom he had carried off from Ephyra, on the river Seles, after sacking many cities of violent, valiant warriors. When Tlepolemus grew up, he killed his father's uncle, Lycomenius, who had been a famous warrior in his time, but was then grown old. On this he built himself a fleet, gathered a great following, and fled beyond the sea, for he was menaced by the other sons and grandsons of Hercules. After a voyage, during which he suffered great hardship, he came to Rhodes, where the people divided into three communities, according to their tribes, and were dearly loved by Jove, the lord of gods and men. Wherefore the son of Saturn showered down great riches upon them. And Nereus brought three ships from Syme, Nereus, who was the handsomest man that came up under the Ilius of all the Danans after the son of Peleus. But he was a man of no substance, and had but a small following. And those that held Nisiris, Crapathus, and Cassus, with Cos, the city of Eurypolis, and the Calydnian islands, these were commanded by Phaedipus and Antiphus, two sons of King Thessalus, the son of Hercules, and with them there came thirty ships, those again who held Pelasgic Argos, Allos, Alope, and Trachis, and those of Thea and Hellas, the land of fair women, who were called Myrmidons, Helens, and Achaeans. These had fifty ships, over which Achilles was in command. But they now took no part in the war, inasmuch as there was no one to marshal them, for Achilles stayed by his ships, furious about the loss of the girl Berseus, whom he had taken from Lyrnesius at his own great peril, when he had sacked Lyrnesus and Thebe, and had overthrown Minus and Epistrophus, sons of King Evanor, son of Asclepius. For her sake Achilles was still grieving, but ere long he was again to join them. 
and those that held Philosi, and the flowery meadows of Parasus, sanctuary of Ceres, Iton, the mother of sheep, Antrum upon the sea, and Talium that lies upon the grasslands. Of these, brave Protesilaus had been captain while he was still yet alive, but he was now lying under the earth. He had left a wife behind him in Philasi to tear her cheeks in sorrow, and his house was only half finished, for he was slain by a Dardanian warrior while leaping foremost of the Achaeans upon the soil of Troy. Still, though his people mourned their chieftain, they were not without a leader, for Podarces of the race of Mars marshaled them. He was son of Iphiclus, rich in sheep, who was the son of Phylacus, and he was own brother to Protesilaus, only younger, Protesilaus being at once the elder and the more valiant. So the people were not without a leader, though they mourned him whom they had lost. With him there came forty ships, and those that held Ferre by the Bobian lake, with Bobe, Glaphere, and the populous city of Eoclus. These, with their eleven ships, were led by Eumelus, son of Admetus, whom Alcestis bore to him, loveliest of the daughters of Peleus. And those that held Methone and Thaumacia, with Meliboea and rugged Olizon, these were led by the skillful archer Philoctetes. And they had seven ships, each with fifty oarsmen, all of them good archers. But Philoctetes was lying in great pain in the island of Lemnos, where the sons of Achaeans had left him, for he had been bitten by a poisonous water snake. There he lay sick and sorry, and full soon did the Argives come to miss him. But his people, though they felt his loss, were not leaderless, for Medon, the bastard son of Oleus by Rene, set them in array. Those again of Tricca and the stony region of Ithome, and they that held Ocalea, the city of o the Ocalean Eretus, these were commanded by the two sons of Ascalapius. Skilled in the art of healing, Podolirius and Machaon, and with them there came thirty ships. The men, moreover, of Ormenius, by the fountain of Hyperea, with those that held Asterius, and the white crests of Titanus, these were led by Eurypylus, the son of Yemon, and with them there came forty ships. Those that held Argissa and Girtone, Orthe, Elone, and the white city of Olusun, these of these brave Polypotes was leader. He was son of Pirithus, who was son of Jove himself, for Hippodarnea bore him to Pirithus on the day when he took his revenge on the shaggy mountain savages and drove them from Mount Pelion to the Athicus. But Polypotes was not sole in command, for with him was Laentius of the race of Mars, who was son of Coronus, the son of Caneus, and with these there came forty ships. Gunius brought two and twenty ships from Cyphus, and he was followed by the Aeneas and the valiant Perebi, who dwelt about wintry Dodona, and held the lands round the lovely river Tetericeus, which sends its waters into the Peneus, 
They do not mingle with the silver eddies of the Peneus, but flow on the top of them like oil. For the Titaresias is a branch of dread Orcus and of the river Styx. Of the Magnetus, Prothus, son of Tenthredon, was commander. They were they that dwelt about the river Peneus and Mount Pelion. Prothus, fleet of foot, was their leader, and with him there came forty ships. Such were the chiefs and princes of the Danans. Who then, O Muse, was the foremost, whether man or horse, among those that followed after the sons of Atreus? Of the horses, those of the son Pheres were by far the finest. They were driven by Eumelaeus, and were as fleet as birds. They were of the same age and color, and perfectly matched in height. Apollo, of the silver bow, had bred them in Perea, both of them mares, and terrible as Mars in battle. Of the men, Ajax, son of Telamon, was the, much the foremost so long as Achilles' anger lasted, for Achilles excelled him greatly, and he had also better horses. But Achilles was now holding aloof at his ships by reason of his quarrel with Agamemnon, and his people passed their time upon the seashore, throwing discs or aiming with spears at a mark, and in archery. Their horses stood each by his own chariot, champing lotus and wild celery. The chariots were housed under cover, but their owners, for lack of leadership, wandered hither and thither about the host and went forth to fight. Went not forth to fight. Thus marched the host like a consuming fire, and the earth groaned beneath them as when the Lord of Thunder is angry and lashes the land about Typhoeus among the Arami, where they say Typhoeus lies. Even so did the earth groan beneath them as they sped over the plain. And now Iris, fleet as the wind, was sent by Jove to tell the bad news among the Trojans. They were gathered in assembly, old and young, at Priam's gates, and Iris came close up to Priam, speaking with the voice of Priam's son Polites, who, being fleet of foot, was stationed as watchman for the Trojans on the tomb of the old Asetius, to look out for any ally of the Achaeans. In his likeness Iris spoke, saying, Old man, you talk idly as in time of peace, while war is at hand. I have been in many a battle, but never yet saw such a host as is now advancing. They are crossing the plain to attack the city as thick as leaves or as the sands of the sea. Hector, I charge you above all others, do as I say. There are many allies dispersed about the city of Priam from distant places and speaking diverse tongues. Therefore let each chief give orders to his own people, setting them severally in array and leading them forth to battle. Thus she spoke, but Hector knew that it was the goddess, and at once broke up the assembly. The men flew to arms, all the gates were opened, and the people thronged through them, horse and foot, with a tramp as of a great multitude. Now there is a high mound before the city, rising by itself upon the plain. Men call it Bateia, but the gods know it that it is the tomb of live Marini. Here the Trojans and their allies divided their forces. Priam's son, great Hector of the gleaming helmet, commanded the Trojans, and with him were arrayed by far the greater number and most valiant of those who were longing for the fray. 
the Dardanians were led by brave Aeneas, whom Venus bore to Anchises, when she, goddess though she was, had lain with him upon the mountain slopes of Ida. He was not alone, for with him were the two sons of Antenor, Archilochus and Acamas, both skilled in the arts of war. They that dwelt in Telea under the lowest spurs of Mount Ida, men of substance, who drink the limpid waters of the Asipus, are of Trojan blood. These were led by Pandarus, son of Lycaon, whom Apollo had taught to use the bow. They that held Adrasteia, and the land of Apesus, with Piteia, and the high mountains of Terea, these were led by Adrestus and Amphius, whose breastplate was of linen. These were the sons of Merops, of Percote, who excelled in all kinds of divination. He told them not to take part in the war, but they gave him no heed, for fate lured them to destruction. They that dwelt about Percote and Practius, with Cestus, Abidus, and Erisbe, these were led by Asius, son of Hyrtacus, a brave commander. Asius, the son of Hyrtacus, whom his powerful dark bay steeds, of the breed that comes from the river Silaeus, had brought from Erisbe. Hypothus led the tribes of Pelasgian spearmen, who dwelt in fertile Larissa. Hypothus and Peleos of the race of Mars, two sons of the Pelasgian Lethus, son of Tetamus. Acamas and the warrior Pereos commanded the Thracians and those that came from beyond the mighty stream of the Hellespont. Ephemus, son of Trozenus, the son of Chaos, was captain of the Siconian spearsmen. Pirachmes led the Paeonian archers from a distant Amadon by the broad waters of the river Axius, the fairest that flow upon the earth. The Paphlagonians were commanded by stout-hearted Pilaminus from Enete, where the mules run wild in herds. These were they that held Ketoris and the country round Sesamus, with the cities by the river Parthenius, Cromna, Agelus, and lofty Erythini. Odius and Epistrophus were captains over the Halizoni from distant Alibe, where there are mines of silver. Chromius and Anomus the augur led the Mysians, but his skill in augury availed not to save him from destruction, for he fell by the hand of the fleet descendant of Achis in the river, where he slew others also of the Trojans. Phorcys again, and noble Ascanius led the Phrygians from the far country of Ascania, and both were eager for the fray. Mestilus and Antiphus commanded the Maeonians, sons of Telemenus, born to him of the Gagaean lake. These led the Maeonians, who dwelt under Mount Tumulus. Nastus led the Carians, men of a strange speech. These held Miletus and the wooded mountain of Thyris, with the water of the river Meander and the lofty crests of Mount Macali. These were commanded by Nastes and Amphimachus, the brave sons of Nomion. He came into the fight with gold about him like a girl. Fool that he was, his gold was of no avail to save him, for he fell in the river by the hand of the fleet descendant of Achaeus, and Achilles bore away his gold. 
Sarpedon and Glaucus led the Lycians from their distant land by the eddying waters of the Xanthus. I've stopped reading a little bit sooner than normal because I just wanted to take a moment to introduce myself and to talk about my personal reasons for recording the Iliad and my interest in ancient Greek literature. I never read the Iliad growing up. I don't remember it ever being assigned to me in middle school, high school, or even college literature classes. So it's, it's one of those books that I have meant to read for a long time and just hadn't gotten around to doing it. I've had the idea for this podcast for some time. Uh, when I first started the Instagram page Ancient Eclectic, I was not necessarily planning on beginning a podcast to accompany it. But as I continued on, I had the idea of beginning a podcast in which I could read ancient works as a narrator, and it would sort of work as a companion to the Instagram page. Uh, going forward, I would say the Instagram page will more likely be a companion to the podcast. There'll be a synergy between the two. So as I'm going through ancient Greek classics, I'm going to be posting quotes from ancient Greek philosophers and Greek writers, Greek thinkers, etc. My interest in ancient writings, I think, is due in no small part to being raised in Christian churches. Um, obviously, for those of you who know what it's like to be raised in a religious environment, particularly a Christian environment, you grow up hearing stories from ancient texts that are held dear, that are held sacred. And while I have a very different perspective now on the particular texts that I grew up with, i.e. the Bible, than I once did, I still find great historical and cultural value in them. And something that intrigues me is going back and studying the writings of other cultures that were contemporaneous to the biblical writings, uh, the Greeks being one. They are a culture that interacted uh, quite a bit with Israel and you know, with the Jews during those time periods, uh, eventually conquering. Israel and subjugating them um, such that Hellenistic culture, as it was called, or Greek culture, eventually diffused through and mixed with, if you will, much of Jewish culture. And this eventually became a point of contention amongst the Jews. As you get closer to the Maccabean period, there was literally like physical conflicts and, and arguments amongst Jews that were in favor of Israel becoming more and more Greek 
you know, in its in its cultural influence, in its governmental structure. Um, and then there were those, what you might call the conservatives, the conservative Jews who wanted to remain faithful to the centuries-old traditions of their fathers, such as adhering to the Mosaic Law, you know, keeping to the covenant of Abraham, etc. And they felt that faithfulness to those traditions was more important, you know, than... They looked at it as, as something evil and impure, I think, to be tainted with too much Greek culture. So there were, there were arguments about that. Um, and I think you see similar forces at work today. Like you, you see, even in, like I live in America, in the United States of America, and I see similar forces even today. Like amongst religious groups, I see some people who are more conservative, who want to hold to a particular tradition, whatever that tradition might be in a particular instance, but they want to hold tightly, they want to do things as they have been done, or believe things that have always been believed, you know, that that kind of idea, hold to the tradition, stick as closely as possible to the original document, try to take it, you know, as as literally as, as is possible, you know, within grammatical and historical allowances, but try to take it very literally, very seriously, and they're generally are, are not big fans of, of changes in perspective or interpretations. They're skeptical of, of new movements or progressivism in general. And then you have on the other side those that see the need for their religious traditions to adapt to changing cultures and, and changing environments. So they're more open to change and they push for what they would view as progress. You know, and progress is is a rel- is relative to the observer, if you will. But they would deem themselves progressives and they might be branded as, as liberals by the more conservative elements. You see similar forces at work in our in our politics here in America. You have the more conservative Republicans who hold that the Constitution should be is essentially it's our sacred document we are to adhere as closely to it as possible to do our best to understand the original intent of the authors of the constitution and to try our best to apply that to the current situation whereas the the progressives or what might be called the liberals generally speaking the democratic party or those that are further left if you will are, are see the Constitution as far more malleable. They see it more as a living tradition, one that is meant to change and adapt, you know, to the current environment, to new cultural trends, etc. This may include changing some of the morality or the mores of of the nation or the people, you know, and, and they see morality as as more fluid, if you will, less static and fixed. So you see these these tensions going back and forth. So it's fascinating to look back at at history and see similar behaviors uh, amongst human groups. 
Now the circumstances, the specific circumstances, are unique to that time period and, and those places in which the events occurred and the big behaviors happened, but you see similar patterns. You know, as we humans in the last few thousand years, like, we haven't changed that much as a species. Like, our, we haven't evolved that much as a species. Our brains aren't much, aren't very different than they were, you know, 3,000 years ago. You know, there's been some small incremental changes, but they're almost not noticeable. You know, so you, you look through cultural history and you see patterns. You know, you see patterns in literature. And you see, one of the patterns you see is that we humans learn from other humans. You know, traditions get passed down, culture gets transmitted. Obviously, I'm taking part in that right, you know, with this podcast by sharing with you this ancient Greek story. Uh, we believe is written by Homer. Scholars, you know, it's, it's hard to nail that down, historically speaking, but it, it's, it's attributed to Homer. And uh, as far as I know, the tr ancient Greek tradition held that it was written by Homer. I'm not as up to date on that as I, as I am some of the information about the way the Bible was transmitted. You know, the Christian Bible, Jewish scriptures, and then the later the Christian scriptures. I know more about that, but I, I have learned a bit about... Greek culture as well, and I'm wanting to learn more, which is one, another reason why I have made the decision to read through the Iliad. As for why I chose to do it in this format, I've always wanted, I shouldn't say always, <laughs> I have wanted to, to record an audiobook for a long time. Now, by no means do I consider this a professional recording, a professional work. This is, this is amateur you know, this is me just flexing my muscles a bit, flexing my creative muscles, and I'm really enjoying it, honestly. And, you know, if this were ever to to turn into something I could do on the side, like actual voice acting or audiobook narration, like that would be really cool. I would thoroughly enjoy that. I, I've, I've always loved reading stories out loud. And I have three kids now, and I love reading books to my kids. I don't always feel like it. There's days when I'm just really tired. But when I when I force myself to sit down with my kids and read it, invariably, I enjoy that. I even enjoy, like, doing the voices for them. Like, you know, doing creative voices. And I'm trying not to go too wild with that here. <laughs> one, of the, one of the tough parts about doing narration or voice acting is keeping voice is consistent. If you try to do a very distinctive voice for a particular character, then the difficulty and the challenge is to remember what you did the next time <laughs> and to try to copy it. That's a challenge. And that's where having a producer, like a director of, of the narration is helpful because you can have an outside ear. I don't have the benefit of that um, aside from you, my listeners. So I do welcome feedback. Um, but honestly, I'm doing this for fun. And I'm doing this because I'm a literature, a bit of a literature nerd. And these are the type of podcasts that, that I enjoy finding. It's like, oh, you know, I found a, a narrator I like who is reading through a book I wanted to read. And it's free. I was like, that's awesome. 
and obviously something like the Iliad is is public domain. You know, <laughs> it's uh, it's almost three thousand years old. So yeah, it definitely falls under public domain. Um, but it's still an engaging story. I will say that. I'm having a bit of trouble, as you've probably noticed, with pronunciation of some of the proper names. Uh, obviously, I I don't speak classical Greek. <laughs> I, I did take a little bit of Koine Greek in college. Uh, I was pursuing religious studies, and I did take a year of Koine Greek, which is different than classical Greek, which, as I understand it, is what many of the works like Aristotle, Socrates, Plato... I believe Homer as well, although it's from a different era. Um, most scholars I have seen attribute, or I mean, Homer lived, I think, somewhere in the 8th century BCE, whereas Socrates was in the 5th century, and then Plato, the 4th century, Aristotle, or kind of in that range. And they were after 500 BCE. Homer lived, you know, in the 8th century BCE, you know, in the 700s, if you will. So, you know, language evolves over time, but, you know, it typically doesn't change dramatically in just a couple hundred years. So the classical Greek that Homer used wouldn't have differed a lot from the classical Greek that uh, Plato and Aristotle wrote in. You know, there would be some changes, of course. Uh, some linguistic and etymological evolution would have occurred. But it would have been similar to, you know, those of us in the USA like me reading something written by Thomas Jefferson, you know, it's almost 300 years ago, not quite 300, you know, it's in that range, you know, it, it's, for the most part, it's understandable. There's a few idiomatic expressions that I would have to look up and a few archaic words that aren't, that don't mean what they used to mean or aren't even used anymore. But for the most part, it's not that hard to understand what Thomas Jefferson wrote. You know, it's, it's, very similar to the English we use today. So I think the same would, would have hold true for comparing like Homer to Plato, which I have read some Plato, um, and that's something I may dip into as well with this podcast. I'm not just going to read, you know, great epics or, if you will, fictional stories. I do want to also dip into some writings of philosophers and thinkers you know, from the ancient past. In general, I'm going to do things prior to 500 CE. You know, this is called ancient eclectic. So I figure if it's not at least a thousand years old, I'm probably not going to include it in the podcast. Because otherwise it wouldn't really fit. <laughs> you know, I figure it needs to be at least a thousand years old. So let's just say a thousand CE is going to be the cutoff. I'll probably work my way through chronologically within each geographical region. You know, maybe I'll, I'll read some Greek authors starting with the oldest and moving forward a little bit. And then I'll, I may move to another region, start with one of the oldest works, if not the oldest, and then move forward a little bit, you know. And from time to time, uh, we'll have a guest narrator as well. That's in the plans. I've already have one person who has agreed to the guest narrate for me. This will be a one-off, kind of like a bonus episode, just something from ancient Greek culture um, that this person finds meaningful and wants to share with the world. So from time to time, you'll see a bonus episode like that pop up with guest narration. 
But yeah, we'll see where it goes. So, thank you again for joining me. And I look forward to sharing again with you tomorrow as we pick up where we left off in the Iliad. <laughs>